Welcome to the Mustang UMC podcast recorded each Sunday morning during our 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. services. We invite you to join us in praise and worship during that time, and our hope is that this podcast serves as an encouragement for you and for your family in your daily life. over first service, so I've thought about that, and I'm not going to change anything. <laughs> In fact, uh, just this one time, the Baptists will beat you to the buffet today. And I understand the Life Church is letting people out early today to beat you. So plan on long waits today. I'd go to McDonald's, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a thrill to be, oh yeah, have a seat. Uh, you can tell we've had exhaustive rehearsals for this today. Uh, my name is Greg. I've gone to this church for 36 years. I have a wife back there. Is she still here? Okay. She's made it for two services uh, of 52 years. I'm told that uh, 47 of them she'd rather forget, but we've been together 52 years. I love this plaque that hangs in our bedroom. You're welcome to come check it out. It says... Murder, never. Now it says divorce, never. Murder, maybe. <laughs> We've gone to this church for all of those years. We went uh, to three other churches when we first came in here, and it was our son, Brian, and I want that family to stand just for a moment. I am blessed to have all of my grandchildren here today. There are 11 of them, and bless their hearts, uh, two of them are now in college, a third college age, uh, has been a missionary in Uganda, and we have just been blessed over and over and over again. Recently, we moved to be next door to them, where every day it's a revolving door of between one and six grandchildren coming by to say what's on their hearts and on their minds. I call that a real blessing, so I'm thrilled to be here. This is my home church. This church has helped me bury three parents. This church has helped us through struggles in finances, struggles in our marriage. <laughs> I won't tell the story because I, I will try to get you out here semi on time. But I even was a sermon example one time from one of our pastors of how not to be a husband. Uh, and uh, that's the way that it went. And I, I took that lesson. It didn't change a darn thing, but I was happy to hear it that day. You've helped me through everything. In fact, people that don't have a church family, I, I worry for them. If we don't have people surrounding us in the love of Christ to help us through life's difficult moments, then this life can be a struggle. So I pray for that and pray for each of you. The title of my talk today is, In Thy Dark Streets Shineth the Everlasting Light. That's a familiar phrase. Anybody know what that's from? Yes, Reuben does. He's going to play for it in a little bit. In fact, I'm going to make you stand up and sing a verse of it, but I'll tell you right up front, it's only halfway through our sermon, so don't leave when we're done. Uh, sit back down and enjoy the rest of it. It's a line from a Christmas carol called, O Little Town of Bethlehem, in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting life. Now, my granddaughter, Daisy White, wants to know why I want to celebrate Christmas in July, and that's not the point at all. The point is, it has something to do with an American story that I want to tell. This is the 4th of July. Are you happy to be American, by the way? That kind of, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And uh, 
That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a moment in time that lasted four years. We're going to talk about the bombing of Pearl Harbor. With this, is, this is the 80th year of that. And anybody that's still alive that was in that conflict or that day would probably be close or over 100 years old today. But it's still America's darkest moment, but it's also the beginning of our greatest days. In fact, anybody that fought in World War II is considered part of the greatest generation of Americans. I know my mother-in-law, Mildred, who passed away at 94 a couple of years ago, uh, I'd come home and tell her my troubles, my whiny, and this and that, and that didn't go right, and I'm mad about this, and the country did this, and the president did that, and I didn't agree with it. And she'd say, that isn't anything. You have no idea the life I've led and what I've gone through. And she meant, absolutely meant that. So let me read our scriptures. We have uh, three a total, Todd Wright. We're going to do Second uh, uh, Samuel 23, 4-6, and then the first two first couple of verses of Psalms 40 and the last two verses of Psalms 40. This is at a time when David was retiring as the king of Israel. He'd been leader of that country for 40 years. I'm going to tell you right up front, he's considered the greatest king Israel ever had. God called him his friend. He never lost a war. In fact, he wasn't allowed to build God's temple because of he was such a warrior. I need your son to do it, who's a little bit more of a man of peace than you are. But listen to these words about David from his God. This is at the end of his life. David is like the light of morning on, at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the field. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me every desire. We all know this. Two cities in Israel were named after him. They were called the cities of David. Jerusalem and Bethlehem, where our Savior is from. But along the way, those of us that study the Bible know that David was a very flawed human being. He was an adulterer. He conspired to have the husband of the wife he committed adultery with killed in a battle because he was fathering a child with this woman. Later in life, his ego got the best of him. He thought every successful thing in Israel were because of his hands, not God's. So he tried to take a sense of everything to proclaim that this is what I have done. In spite of that, God remembers him very, very beautifully. Two other scriptures from the 40th Psalm, verses 1 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock. We'll get into the meaning of that in a little bit. The story will flow along that. And number 11 and 12. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me, and my sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. I want everybody here to know that I love this country. It hurts my heart some of the things we're going through today. I love this country. I still believe it's the greatest opportunity on this planet for anybody that wants to gain 
a financial success in what we do or recognition of some sort. I love it for the equality it offers, the opportunities not seen anywhere else in the world. Thousands of people a day, and you know this if you watch the news, are trying to get into this country. And we struggle with should we let them in or not. My own granddaughter, Danielle, is working on a immigration for her fiance to come here from Uganda. And we're all praying for his legal immigration. We were founded on the highest standards of God and his protections. We as a country and individuals have made mistakes along the way. And I'm going to talk about a few as we go through this. Just a few quick facts before we get into that Pearl Harbor thing and the subsequent four years that went after that, I want you to know in a minute flat or two uh, that we are a Christian nation. And that's been upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. Here's just a few things I want you to know. Of the 252 signers of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and our Bill of Rights, we think it was Washington, Jefferson, and possibly Ben Franklin, 252 signers. 235 of them were Christians. They were made up of Baptists, Quakers, which we call friends today, Baptists, and Methodists. Now, I will say this about the Baptists, because there's very little difference between Baptists and Methodists. I wanted you to know that. It just came to me. Uh, <clears throat> the Baptists dunk people, and we sprinkle people. And the Baptists dance, but they don't tell anybody that's what they do. Other than that, we're pretty much the same. This is a copy of the New England Primer from 1636 until the dawn of the 20th century. This is how our children were taught to read. Here's three quotes from it. This is how we learned our ABCs. A is for Adam. C is for the Christ child. S is for the serpent that tempted Eve. In 1892, this is the United States Supreme Court upheld in a lawsuit from the Holy Trinity Church that America unequivocally, based on a preponderance of evidence from our founding fathers, is a Christian nation. I still believe that today. I believe it almost, it's almost 80% of Americans still believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. With the exception of Pearl Harbor and the terrorist attack on our Twin Towers, we have never been attacked on our soil. 204 people, I'm sorry, 2,403 people died at Pearl Harbor. In fact, Anita and I have been blessed to go there, oh, a half a dozen times over the years. Every time I go, I go to the Arizona Memorial. I go to the USS Oklahoma Memorial. And I stand on the Missouri, where Japan surrendered from World War II. On Christmas Eve, and I've got to do a little bit of reading, I apologize. I want you to hear the words of Franklin Roosevelt, our president, and Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England. On Christmas Eve, 1941, America had just declared war with Imperial Japan and Hitler's Nazi Germany. We had been attacked at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii just three weeks before, and 2,403 great Americans died in that surprise attack. 
The mood of the country was anxious, tense, afraid for the future, and worried that our losses would be heavy. We were also worried that the Japanese would reach the West Coast and bomb Los Angeles or San Francisco. The mood of the country was, was heavy, and we worried about our losses. Our country had no idea what lay ahead. We didn't know that over the course of the next four years, 16 million of our finest young people would serve in the bloodiest war in the history of the world either directly as soldiers or civilian support of the war effort. We didn't know that over 500,000 of our men and women, America's sons and daughters, all races and all creeds, would be lost in battles thousands of miles from home. We certainly didn't know that war would drag on for four years before the surrender of the Japanese forces and the surrender of Hitler's armies. We did know that what lay ahead had to be done and that no matter what, Victory was the only solution to preserve the freedoms that we still love today. In Europe, the war had been raging for over two years. Many of our allies had fallen under the control of German war machine. Our closest ally, England, was surviving almost nightly bombing raids on London, Liverpool, Manchester, and other key cities. They already knew the horrors of war, and they were stubbornly holding up against the Nazi brand of war called Blitzkrieg and the numbing bombing attacks of the German Air Force called the Luftwaffe. Just a quick note on that. In one stretch of bombings between 1939 and 1940, the Germans bombed London 56 straight nights out of 58. Every night. And in those bombings by the second year, because of England's resolve, they switched from military targets to civilian targets. They bombed churches, schools, and hospitals. Over 250,000 English-speaking Englanders, Great Britain subjects, were dead before Pearl Harbor was attacked. Thousands of innocent British soldiers and civilians and families were destroyed. Britain's prime minister, and this is key to our story today because we don't teach this history in our schools, and it's very important for us as Americans to know. Britain's Prime Minister Winston Churchill made a daring and dangerous trip aboard the HMS Duke of York to Washington on that day. It was a harrowing 10-day trip through the icy waters of the Atlantic Ocean to assure our president and our country that England was our strong ally and that we would win the victory over Germany and Japan together. The Atlantic at the time of the voyage was dominated by the infamous German U-boats. Those submarines were knocking ships right out of the Atlantic all over the place. It was a harrowing trip. The Luftwaffe was knocking planes out of the sky. Churchill sets up a camouflage. He convinces the world that he's going to the Middle East, the exact opposite direction. He comes to America. He comes to America to light our Christmas tree on Christmas Eve of 1941. I want to, I wish we could play them, but they're too scratchy, they're too old, they, 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 don't, they don't hold up in time. I want you to hear their remarks to the American people that night, as 20,000 people stood on the lawn of the White House to hear their, the two leaders of the free world speak together. I want you to hear their words, and if you try to count, try to count how many times God is invoked in their speeches, because I guarantee you, you will hear nothing like that in the culture we live in today. Franklin Roosevelt. My fellow workers, 
of freedom. There are many men and women in America, sincere and faithful men and women, who are asking themselves this Christmas, how can we light our Christmas trees? How can we give our gifts? How can we meet and worship with love and with uplifted spirit and heart in a world at war, a world of fighting and suffering and death? How can we pause even for Christmas Day in our urgent labor of arming a decent humanity against the enemies that beset it? How can we put the world aside in peaceful years to rejoice in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ? These are the natural and inevitable questions in every part of the world which is resisting the evil thing. And notice he called it the evil thing. Satan rules this world, and we know that too in our hearts. And even as we ask these questions, we know the answer. There is another preparation demanded of this nation beyond and beside the reparations of weapons of wars and materials of wars. There is demanded also of us the preparation of our hearts, the arming of our hearts for the labor and suffering and the ultimate victory which lie ahead. Then we observe Christmas Day with all its memories and all its meanings as we should. Looking ahead into the days to come, I have set aside a day of prayer. In that proclamation, I have said, the year 1941 has brought upon our nation of aggression of war of powers dominated by arrogant rulers whose selfish purpose is to destroy free institutions. They would thereby take from the freedom-loving peoples of the earth the hard-won liberties gained over many centuries. In the new year of 1942, calls for courage and the resolution of old and young to help win a world struggle in order that we may preserve all that we hold dear. We are confident in our devotion to country and our love of freedom in our inherent courage. But our strength as the strength of all men everywhere is of greater avail as God upholds us. Therefore, I do appoint this day, the first day of the year, January 1942, as a day of prayer, asking forgiveness for our shortcomings of the past and consecration of the tasks of the present. We need his guidance that his people may be humble in spirit, but strong in the conviction of the right, steadfast to endure sacrifice and brave to achieve a victory of liberty and peace. Our strongest weapon of this war just that the conviction of the dignity and brotherhood of man, which Christmas Day signifies more than any other day at our symbol. Against enemies who preach principles of hate and practice them, we set forth faith in human love and in God's care for us and men everywhere. It is in that spirit, in that Holy Spirit, and with thoughtfulness of those, our sons and daughters who serve in our armed forces in land and sea, near and far, those who serve us and endure us for what we light are Christmas candles now and across the continent from one coast to the other on this Christmas Eve. We have joined with many other nations and peoples in a great cause. Millions of them have engaged in the task of defending good with their livelihood for months and years. One of the greatest leaders stands beside me. He and his people in many parts of the world are having their Christmas trees with their little children around them just as we do here. People have pointed the way in courage and in sacrifice for the sake of little children everywhere. And so I'm asking my associate and my old friend to say a word to the people of America, old and young, tonight, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill made a very, very short speech. It's three paragraphs. I spend this anniversary and festival far from my country and far from my family. Yet I cannot truthfully say that I feel far from home, whether it be the ties of blood on my mother's side or the friendships I have developed here over many years of active life, 
or the commanding sentiment of comradeship in common sense, of great peoples who speak the same language and kneel at the same altars, and to a very large extent pursue the same ideals. I cannot find myself a stranger here in the center of the tumult of the United States. I feel a sense of unity and fraternal association which added to the kindness of your welcome convinces me that I have a right to sit at your fireside and share your Christmas. This is a strange Christmas Eve. Almost the whole world is locked in deadly struggle and with the most terrible weapons which science can divide. The nations advance on each other. Would it be for us this Christmas tide if we were not sure that no greed for the land or wealth of any people, no vulgar ambition, no morbid lust for material gain at the expense of others, and led us to the field. Here in the midst of war, raging and roaring over the lands and seas, creeping under our hearts and homes, here amidst the tumult, we have tonight the peace of the Holy Spirit. In each cottage home, in every generous heart, therefore, we may cast aside the night, at least the dares and dangers which beset us, and make for the children an evening of happiness in a world of storm. Here then for one night only, each home throughout the English-speaking world should be a brightly lighted island of happiness and peace. Let the children have their night of fun and laughter. Let the gifts of Father Christmas delight their play. Let the grown-ups share in the full and their unstinted pleasures before we turn again to the stern task of the formidable years that lie before us. Resolve that by our sacrifice and daring, these same children shall not be robbed of their inheritance or denied their right to live in a free and decent world. And may God have mercy on our victory. Between those two talks, I mean, you may have lost counted. The name of God, Roosevelt and Churchill invoke directly or indirectly God, the Almighty, or Christmas 22 times. That makes it the focal point of those speeches. They were praying for their people. They were praying for their freedom. They were praying for their families, for their countries, and for there to be peace on earth, and that both countries could survive this world impact because they had no way of knowing. 20 million people died in World War II. 16 million of them were Russians who fought as our ally during World War II. After the lighting of the tree, which is so beautifully displayed on a YouTube video, Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill attended Christmas Eve service held at the Foundry Methodist Church in Washington, D.C. During the service, they sang the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, an American tradition. Churchill had not heard the hymn before. He pondered the line in the hymn, in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. It is said that the prime minister sang boisterously and more than slightly off-key. The line identified brought a tear to the prime minister's eye as he realized what the line meant to him. Namely, it meant that even though his home city of London was being bombed that very night, Churchill knew that God was shining his light in the darkness of the London streets and that even in the horror of war, God was with him and his people. Churchill was a regular member of the Church of England. One of his most famous quotes that we've all heard before, we shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were suffocated and starving, 
then our empire beyond the seas, arms and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good name and time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to, rec to rescue the world and bring in the new. So in honor of that night, and Reuben and Caitlin are, are with me here, let's stand. Remember, this is halfway. So don't go out the door and don't flood the altar. It's not time yet. I want to sing one verse of that Christmas carol. Thank you. Can you just see the teardrop in the eyes? <clears throat> I'm a little emotional this week. I lost my first cousin on Friday, I think. He and I grew up together. His parents raised me. So where that, that song would evoke an emotion anyway, it's kind of doubled up on me here. I'll get through this. There was a tear in the eye of one of the 20th century's greatest as he thought of his beloved country suffering under constant and relentless bombing of his British Isles. Isn't it wonderful that a night so long ago would be, that would herald in the Savior and protect her the world and that our two leaders would lead us in that thought. I want to highlight just four, four aspects of the war. I'm not going to recap the war. We won it. We won it in four years. We became the leader of the free world, and we all know that. And they teach all about the battles and the times in our schools. I want to talk about four things that were situational that happened. Three of them pretty good. One of them not so good. But I think as mature Christians, we can, we can understand this. First of all, I want to talk about the fighting Sullivans. Anybody know who they were? Good. Several of us do. The Sullivan family had four boys, five boys. The oldest, George, his fiance was a nurse on Pearl Harbor. She was killed in that battle. George and his four brothers, who, by the way, their motto was, we stick together, enlisted in the Navy, and in, in February of 1942, 60 days after Pearl Harbor, they set off for the South Pacific and later died, all five of them, at the battle for Guadalcanal, the battle that wound up raging on for seven months. But that's not really my story. They gained a lot of notoriety for joining up together. They were kind of like celebrities. After their passing, Alida Sullivan didn't hear of their deaths for almost 13 months, 
She suspected it. People were coming home. We didn't have Instagram or Facebook. We couldn't FaceTime anybody. We couldn't Zoom it. She just had to wait. And she wrote to the Secretary of the Navy, and she said, I do not blame the Navy. I do not blame my country. My boys lived and died for these United States. The boys had been asked to christen a ship in 1943, the Voyager, but they were gone. She said to the Secretary of Neighbor, I want to do that christening for them because they asked me to. She christened that ship. I can't quote her. I've got it on here somewhere, but my eyes are blurry now and I can't read it, so you'll just have to deal with my paraphrase. She basically said, my children have all gone home. And I'm excited that when Jesus calls me home, I get to see him again. Only a God to his loving son could give us the Sullivans in our darkest hours. She went on with her husband, Tom, to visit over 500 factories in the United States that were building guns and bombs and airplanes. And in every factory, she said the same thing. I can't wait to see my boys when Jesus calls me home. It's reported that every factory she visited in the next three years were able to increase capacities because they were so moved by this woman. She's probably, I think she is, she's called our first gold star mom in the history of that term. The next one I want to talk about is one that's a little more fun. Uh, go to Doolittle. Four months after Pearl Harbor, with America's Navy being crippled, Lieutenant Colonel James Jimmy Doolittle said, I can do something about that. He formed a squadron of 16 B-25s and went on a bombing mission to Tokyo. Because of the distance from Tokyo, from where they were taking off from, there was only enough gasoline for a one-way trip. They knew that after they dropped every one of their bombs, they were now in enemy territory. They ditched their planes in the, China, in the Sea of China. Fortunately, China was neutral in the war because they were fighting a war with Japan themselves. Of the 80 crewmen that left, including Doolittle, 70 of them got home. Now I look at that and I say, only a loving God with his son Jesus Christ could ever make that happen. That was a suicide mission. They were all going down in flames. That was just four months after Pearl Harbor. What did it do? It was no great military victory. It was strictly a moral victory. We did drop 50 bombs. There was some damage done, but not real damage. But what it gave us at that moment in time, a lift in our darkest moments of history, that Japan could be reached and could be attacked. Only God, through his loving son, could give us Jimmy Doodle in our hour of need to raise our hopes for ever winning that war. The next one is, uh, and I love this one. I like to tell people, 
Uh, in fact, I'm going to divert and tell a quick story, although I have eight minutes left. Okay, I'm trying to respect that. Uh, I don't want you way back in line, but not first in line. We can't do that today. Bob Hope. Many of you know Bob Hope or have heard of Bob Hope. I got to meet Bob Hope. I didn't tell that in the first service. Uh, for many, many years, McDonald's supported the muscular dystrophy telephone. We still do, when Jerry Lewis was running it. Well, the headquarters for that was always the Sahara Hotel in Vegas, which is where Anita and I were living. And we would deliver cheeseburgers faithfully every year. To anybody that was in those dressing rooms, the MC, Jerry Lewis himself. And as I was delivering cheeseburgers, one of the days of the telephone, the person in the dressing room was Bob Hope. And all I had to do was say to him, Bob, thank you for everything that you've done. And I'll tell that story in a minute. He said, thanks for the cheeseburgers. They were good. That's it. Nothing shake or shaking there. No history being written there. When Pearl Harbor was bombed, Bob Hope said, I've got to get to the troops. His first trip was to the Aleutian Islands above Alaska. They're part of the Alaskan chain. The most remote island is 50 miles from the Russian border. Now, they were our allies in World War II, but they were never our friends. Bob Hope did 58 shows in five days. That launched him on a career of visiting the USO and visiting the South Pacific and Italy and England and France and all points around the world where we're in conflict. And he didn't stop after World War II. He carried the USO through Vietnam and Desert Storm for 49 years. He served our troops, bringing laughter in a dark and dismal world. I think he's a hero for that. And I say to you, I don't think anybody but God would know what we need at the moment we needed it. And Bob Hope, who was a faithful person, and told his chief of staff, God holds a very special place in my heart. And these troops, I can't ever forget. Bob Hope lived to be 100 years old. Some of us know that. He stopped touring in 1990 because of age, but he survived another 13 years. One last slide, and then I'm going to think about how to close this up fast. Admiral Isoruka Yamamoto is famous for saying, I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. And he was exactly right. Just a quick recap. The Battle of Midway took place on June 3, 1942, just six months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Three days later, the Japanese began to retreat. The Japanese lost three of their carriers and only had one left at that time. On July 9, 1942, America launched an offensive on the Solomon Islands that included the battle for Guadalcanal, where the Solomons were lost. The battle raged for seven months, but when it was over, the Japanese Navy was so crippled that they were no longer a threat of aggression. Americans could breathe easier that the Japan, Japanese people nor the German armies could get to the United States. From this point until the bitter end, because Germany's the same. 
Russia, America, and England crushed the German armies by as late as 1942. But Germany and Japan had the will to continue fighting. There was no more aggression, no more bombings in London. Those were done. From that point on, they just fought to get every inch of ground they could hold. Their war rages on for three more years. Ooh, two more years. But the direct threat to England and America was over. Only God, through his loving son, could give us the will and the strategies. My God, we had great leaders. We had Churchill. We had FDR. We had Eisenhower and Patton, Montgomery. We had the best of the best. And we defeated that foe. When my dad and my Uncle Dick, who raised me, and Aunt Anita and Anita's Uncle Don returned from service in World War II, along with every person, both men and women, received a copy of the New Testament and the Psalms, a pocket-sized volume with a letter from FDR on the inside flap. It said, as Commander-in-Chief, I take pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces of the United States. Throughout the centuries, men of many faiths and diverse origins have found in the sacred book of wisdom, counsel, and inspiration. It is a fountain of strength now and always, an aid in attaining the highest aspirations of the funerals of, of, of their soul. I wish that lesson were taught to our young people. Today we fight a new kind of war. It's not necessarily the physical war, we're not worried about being bombed, at least not top of mind. But we are in a war for our culture. We're in a world where all of our institutions are being doubted, disgraced, and torn down wherever possible. Young people today don't really understand how deep the idea of America is. We have harbored injustice. We did things that were wrong. We live today with the stains of many an indiscretion but I believe that all of us still live under the leadership of one Savior. And if we remember to call on Him in our hours of darkness, He will respond to our prayers. He says in Second Chronicles, and we all know this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will heal, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The only thing I didn't mention, I think I just glossed right over it, so let me take a minute and go back. I also wanted to highlight the Tuskegee Airmen, an all-black American squadron that weren't even recognized until 1944, when they alone took on an assignment to bomb an island in the South Pacific, a little island that was used as a prison island. And without any ground forces, they got 12,000 enemy soldiers to surrender by the vicious bombing and courageous of them. Along with that, I'm going to mention a million two African-Americans fought with us. And after 1945, they had to come home to a segregated United States. The only good news there is was 10 years later, they were in the battle of their lives for the civil rights. And 15 years later, a young black preacher, 23 years old, stepped forward. His name was Martin Luther King. 40,000 Japanese Americans fought for America while their families were interred. We don't call them concentration camps, we call them internment centers. And another 40,000 Native Americans 
who are responsible for developing the codes the Japanese could never break and helped us gain that victory, only to come home and back to their reservations and back to their lives. I mentioned that not to tarnish America, but to remind you of what we were talking about. We're flawed. Let me conclude this by saying I've gone on long enough. So to me, there's three things that I want to impress upon all of us, and then we're going to have our communion and they get in line behind the Baptist. Psalm 41 and 2 says that Christians need to pray continuously. We were talking in Sunday school last week, and uh, Anita made the comment, well, we need to pray continuously. And I said, well, is that every day? And she said, no, many times it's many times a day for the struggles that we have. It's said this way in, in, in our verses today. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on rock. Pray every day for our country and our Christian beliefs. David prayed to God for help. Abe Lincoln did the same, as did George Washington, Gideon and Moses, and Abraham. All of our Bible heroes in the Bible prayed every day, at least once. It is part of our Christian heritage. Roosevelt and Churchill did the same. Every one of them was afraid for what was coming. We are afraid for what we're going through and what will, what will come of it in these times. But God told Gideon and all of us not to be afraid. And then he gave us the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Churchill said there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Today we have the same fear of the unknown. Jesus said, my peace I give you and do not be afraid. I am always with you to the end of the age. Number two, live for Christ today and tomorrow and from now on. The, the psalmist said, do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. In spite of our flaws and mistakes and yes, our sins, God, through Jesus, is waiting for each of us to call his name. David was flawed. Israel was flawed. America is flawed. And each and every one of us here is flawed. We're all sinners. The point is this. Never where we were or who we were matters. It only matters about what we do today and the rest of our lives. On Independence Day, we're all wondering, how will my country be saved? Not saved from a desperate world at war, but a desperate point in our history where it seems like we're giving up our Christian values for changing social values. And finally, my third point, we will be rewarded for our tomorrows. Our yesterdays don't matter. The only thing that matters is going forward. Because when God said those words of David, your leadership is like the bright sunny spring morning like the new grass on the ground meant that it was so refreshing to him that he was Israel's greatest king. Hopefully we don't have the same things in our past that he did. But wouldn't it be great if on our last day on this earth God would say something like that to us. So as we take our communion, stop at the altar, pray for America, Pray for our leaders, pray for all of our Christians around the world, and pray for your families. Pray that the USA will stand as long as a shining light in a dark world.
Thank you for listening to the Mustang UMC podcast. Once again, our services are at 8.30 and 10.50 a.m. every Sunday morning, and we would love to see you there. For more information about the Mustang United Methodist Church, please visit us at mustangumc.org or email us at office at mustangumc.org. That is office at mustangumc.org. We hope you enjoyed.